Our scripture today is from Romans 3, 22 through 31. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, on the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the name of the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Vicki. So good morning. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer City. It's good to see you. Don't you love this time of year? If only it was a little cooler. Uh, I hear it's coming later today, so we can hope. Uh, but thanks for being here this morning. I know there's a lot of traveling, a lot of people out of town, so it's good to see so many of you. We continue in a in a series we've been doing throughout the fall. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna stop after uh, next week to do an Advent series as we normally would do. But um, throughout this whole fall, we've been going through the Book of Romans, and it is very dense. It's very very logical. Uh, it's it's arguments built on top of arguments. I'm reading one commentary in particular. And I just I've begun to chuckle because it, this this comment this man that's that preached through this this uh, book and took years to do so, uh, and so he's preaching uh, literally where we're doing passages he's doing phrases and even words sometimes and he's saying every every time it's this is the most important verse in the entire Bible this is the most this is the most glorious and then and then next week is this is the most important verse in the entire Bible. And that really is the feel of Romans because it's so core to what we believe. It's so core to the gospel that we hold dear. Uh, and so though uh, we might be prone to go, you know, again and again to say this is so important, this is so important, truly, truly I believe as we come to this paragraph beginning here in verse 21, uh, this is the most important paragraph in the Bible, maybe the most important paragraph ever put down on paper in the history of the human, human race. Uh, this is the the commentators call it the Acropolis of the Bible. I mean, these are these are the most important truths that we could ever investigate together. And so we're going to spend two weeks because that's all the time we have. We really could spend a lot more uh, two weeks here in these verses. And I just want to jump in without a whole lot of introduction this morning because I want to give as much time to it as I can. And the argument that Paul is unfolding is from the very beginning of chapter 1 that salvation is by grace and not works. And if it is by grace, then nobody gets to look down on anybody else. C.S. Lewis would say that if your religion causes you to feel like you're better than other people, then you're truly being acted upon, but probably by evil and not by God. That's the way he put it. Pride and grace are incompatible. Pride and grace are incompatible. And the reason I have to say that is because we have to be honest enough this morning to admit that at least to the culture at large, the church 
appears to be full of self-righteousness and braggiosho. Uh, and the reason for that is that the church is full of people who are merely religious and not Christian. Think of it this way. Romans 1, again, which we looked at for many, many weeks, is addressed to irreligious and moral people, idol worshipers, sexually promiscuous people. These are, you know, typical secular materialists uh, that are are part of our culture. Romans 2 is addressed to religious, moral people, church-going people. Because, um, uh, you know, people like you and, you, and, you and I, you might say. And what we learn from the way that Paul has laid this out here is that Christianity is not about Romans 1 people becoming Romans 2 people. This is the extended argument we've been making. Because those people there in Romans 2, they, they're nice and clean and shiny and, and moral, but they're, but they're mean. They're snooty and they're self-regarding. And that's religion. The gospel is different. It goes further. It says that both Romans 1 and Romans 2 people really need to become Romans 3 people. That's where Paul's been taking us. The way you identify a Romans 3 person is by their humility. If Christianity is grace, not works, which is what Paul is arguing and we're going to argue, then A Christian, by definition, is a person who has been humbled by grace. Which is why he ends with the bit about no boasting, which we're going to end with today. And so there's an argument. And here's the argument that he's making, and we're just going to follow it through this morning. He begins by showing us that there truly are no distinctions. Do you see? Uh, Verse 22, no distinctions. Because there are no works that can ultimately justify a person before God, and therefore there can be no boasting. That is his argument, and it's the argument we're going to follow Uh, this morning as we go through this text. So let's look and begin with verse 22 there where Paul says very clearly there are no distinctions. It's a summary of the whole teaching thus far in the book. And so we need to do a bit of review. And we remember that the central idea of Romans is that verse 17 of chapter 1, the gospel reveals righteousness. And the word righteousness is a very important word in the Bible. It doesn't translate so well into our culture, but it would be something like a validating performance record that opens doors would be a a great way to describe what what it means by righteousness. So uh, you can think of things like a job resume that shows all of the list of qualifications that you hope gets you the interview that gets you into the job, or a lot of our our seniors in high school are doing college acceptance, you know, applications and, and letters and that sort of thing, where you're hoping you can put yourself forward and show that you've got what it takes so that the college that you want to go to says, yeah, come be with us. We want you, we want you here. So that's the idea of righteousness, a, a validating performance record that opens doors. Romans is saying the gospel is revealing a righteousness of God, how we can be right with God, how we can be in right relationship with God so that the doors that have been closed to us uh, into relationship with him can be opened. And in chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, Paul's showing us that naturally, by nature, we are not right with God. We don't have this righteousness we need, and that's the real problem in our lives. Our problem is not the things we typically think of as our problems. The real problem we're all facing is that we are under God's wrath because of sin. And in order to get the righteousness that you need, you have to first know you need it, which is why Paul began where he did in the book. In order to get the righteousness that God provides, yours has to be taken away from you, which is what Paul's been laboring to do. And this is very particularly very difficult for religious people, which is what chapter 2 is all about. It's extremely difficult. 
for religious people to look at irreligious people and not begin to feel superior because they have their good deeds. They go to church, they volunteer in the PTA and at the soup kitchen, and it's really hard for your life to be full of those kinds of good works and for you to not begin to rely upon them and, to, and for them to make you to begin to feel like you're better than everybody else. And it's a fatal mistake. It's a fatal mistake. Because being righteous is more than being better than. And a lot of people think that they have the righteousness they need, and they don't, and they don't because they stop at being better than. And so Paul's reminder in verse 22, there is no distinction. And by it, Paul means this, that when it comes to our standing with God, that when it comes to standing before God, the ways that we are different from one another make no difference. One of the foundational Christian truths that should be imprinted upon our culture even is that our differences make little difference. There's a movie out right now, isn't there? Same kind of different as me. Our differences make little difference. Having the right morals, having the right theology, having the right political ideology, having the right pedigree, none of that makes you right. That's what Paul's saying. It may make you better than others, but that's not the same thing. Bishop Mole put it well. He, he said, and I quote, he said, The harlot, the liar, the murderer, the thief, they may stand at the bottom of a mine, and you on the crest of an alp, but you are as little above them. Wait, excuse me. He says, but you are as little able as them to touch the stars. And that's the shift that needs to take place, that the standard that we're striving for, the good, the goal, this righteousness that Paul's talking to us about is something more than better than. It's the stars. It's the glory. And that's why we read in verse 23, there is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's the classical biblical description of sin. All have sinned. No exceptions. The verb tense typically refers to a past action here. Uh, but in this case, uh, get ready for this. Ready? It refers to, I love the way, they used to say in seminary, by the way, they would tell us in seminary, sometimes you got to break out really big theological words just to make sure they know you're smart and maybe smarter than them so they'll listen to the things you have to say. I don't really believe that, but hang in there. Because one of the commentators said, uh, though there's something, there's something really important, something strange happening in the way the verb tense is constructed here, it's, it's not referring to a past action, rather an omnitemporal action, which means this which means a single sinfulness. Paul, when he says all of sin, he's talking about a single sinfulness that we all share with one another. We are all the same, in other words. We're all on equal footing. No one is exempt from the description of sinner because sin is something more than being better than or less than someone else. It is being less than the glory of God. That's the standard. My kids come home from school with a mediocre grade on a test, and the very first thing they say is, yeah, but I got the third highest grade in the class. And what is my response? It's not good enough. What matters is not whether you did better than others, but whether you did your best. And in truth, that's not good enough. Even that's not good enough. Your best is not good enough because the standard is God's best. The standard is God's glory. So do you see how we have to change our thinking? We need to begin to evaluate ourselves along the, 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 uh, the vertical axis of our lives where we are almost exclusively prone to evaluate ourselves 
along a horizontal axis. The chief end of man is to do what? To be better than others? What is it? To glorify God. The essence of sin, therefore, is failing and falling short of his glory. But what exactly does that mean? Because the commentators are really split on exactly what Paul means by this phrase here in verse 23. So instead of trying to explain it, let me just pose some questions. So a, a discovery, a diagnostic uh, you know, exercise this morning. Let me ask it this way. Do you ever fall, excuse me, do you ever fail to give God glory? Do you ever fail to properly give him glory for the things in your life? Do you ever think of yourself as deserving of the things you have because of your hard work? Do you ever complain because life is not going the way you want it to and secretly you think that if you were in charge and not him, it would be better? Are you okay if you do something nice for someone and it goes completely unnoticed? What about this? Let me ask. Do you ever fail to live with God's glory as the source of your happiness and peace internally inside? Do you ever feel like God's love's not enough? That there, you know, there's a glory that comes from men and a glory that comes from God. Do you ever want glory from men more than you want glory from God? Do you ever find yourself too willing to obey men rather than God? Or how about this? Do you ever fail to reflect God's glory to others as his image bearer? Do you ever act ungodlike? Are there... Are you ever the cause of other people having false ideas about what God is like because of what they see in you? We see the commentators are unsure exactly what this phrase means, falling short of the glory of God, but surely it means all of that. And I don't know that we have to choose. We all always are falling short of God's glory. And therefore, as the, the, as the argument continues, Paul's making here, therefore, righteousness can't come through works. Because even our very best works are, according to Isaiah, filthy rags. They are stained with all sorts of imperfect motivations and desires. And so this righteousness that we need has to be a gift. And that's what makes Christianity so unique, such good news, that every other religion in the world calls you to prepare a record of righteousness and then to give it to God as a gift. Christianity alone says that God has prepared a righteous record through Jesus Christ, and he gives it to you as a gift. Christianity is gospel, not religion. Every other religion says your works are the only thing that can get you in. You need good works. Christianity says your works are the only thing that can keep you out. You need good works. By the way, Paul's going to go on. God means to bring good works into our life, but here we have, to, we, have to, we have to wrestle with this. You need good works, but your good works will never be good enough. The righteousness that you need is the righteousness of God that is apart from the law, verse 21, apart from your doing. You have no works. And that's the second thing. That's the second, that's the second thing this morning. And so when you come to see that truth, and here's the thing. Most people, when they come to see that truth, they turn away from God out of fear. They duck into the bushes uh, like the first man and the first woman did in the story in Genesis. But when you come to see that truth and you turn to him and not away him, that's, see, that's the moment. That's the moment of life change. That's the moment of reversal. That's the moment of salvation right there. It's what we call justification. You see that word in verses 23 and 24? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
and are justified by his grace as a gift through Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul's saying. Those who fall short continually can be justified. They can be righteous. That is the good news of Christianity, that we must make an important point here before we go any further to understand what Paul means by this word justification, because it has both positive and negative connotations, and we have to make sure we get both. It's much more than just forgiveness. Christianity can I, look, Christianity is much more than just forgiveness. Can, can we please, I'm not proposing that you find the bumper stickers and rip them off cars, but we need to stop saying Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. This is just not true. It's an, it sounds like an excuse for just being as awful as you want to be, right, in the first place. I can be a jerk, but I'm forgiven. So much more. Listen, so much more. Forgiveness is negative. He, as we sang a minute ago, he casts our sins into the depths of the sea and remembers them no more. Isn't that, isn't that the best? But it's even better because that's just a part. It's much better than that. Justification means this, that God not only forgives our sins, he also clothes us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That his validating performance record becomes ours and God's verdict comes down on our lives. God says over us, mine, loved, holy, blameless. If your faith is in Jesus, you're not just forgiving, you're positively all of those things. You're already all of those things before you become any of those things. I mean, I expected you to be a little more excited about that. I'll be honest. Just a little more, guys. A little more. You will become them. Those things will be true of you in, in who you are one day, but they aren't yet. And even though they aren't yet, they're already yours. Righteous, perfect, son, saint. Marcus Lone said, Forgiveness says you may go. You've been let off the penalty which your sins deserve. Justification says you may come. You're welcome to all of my love and my presence. Listen, God does not just tolerate you. If your faith is in Jesus, he doesn't smirk and shake his head when you mess up as if to say, what can I do? I mean, that's, I don't treat my kids that way. Why, why would I think that that's the way he would treat me? Isn't that good news? Listen, there's more good news. You ready? I mean, this, is, this whole passage is good news. More good news. What I've just been telling you about is a gift. Look there again. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that comes in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Wow. I mean, I, there, there's, that is so intimidating because I have five minutes to talk about all that, and that's just ridiculous. But there are, there are a couple of things in those two verses. Quickly, notice the word grace. We're justified by his grace. The NIV, if you have that translation, says we're justified freely because that's what the word grace means. There are two thoughts about this. First is that grace is non-contributory. Salvation is not a cooperative effort between man and God. Look at the text. There is God's salvation and there is self-salvation and only those two. Grace means God does everything. He does 100%. I do nothing. I do 0%. It's non-contributory, but secondly, it's contrary to merit. Not only do, in grace, do we 
get what we don't deserve, we get the opposite of what we deserve. And like the story my, my, uh, uh, of my friend John Sweet, who died a number of years ago, his son, uh, Christopher, told a story at his funeral that just rocked my world. He told the story of getting kicked out of the Christian school that he went to for uh, his whole life in Lakeland uh, three days before his high school graduation because he went to a party and uh, had a little too much to drink, and the school kicked him out. And he remembered having to go and tell his dad and break the news to his dad. Uh, and um, just expected his dad to just unleash on him. And when he woke up on uh, the morning that would have been his last day, and he was just in dread of all of the things uh, that his dad was going to, you know, his dad said, get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and meet me, you know, get up, get up at 5, we're going to work. And he got up, and he just knew it was going to be a day of just looking at his father's scowl and just knowing, um, just knowing the disappointment and the failure and all that stuff. And he got up and there at the, on the desk, uh, in his room when he woke up at the, at the crack of dawn on what would have been his last day. His dad had left him a little note. He said, today's your last day of school. Here's 50 bucks. Go pick up your friends and go have a great time. And it changed his life. It was the moment, it was the, moment the, the ball dropped when he experienced the grace of his father and he began to understand the grace of his heavenly father. It changed his life and it can change yours too. So this is, this is grace we're talking about here. And so let me bring it home to you by showing you how Paul describes how this, all of this that's given to us comes from the initiative and grace of all three persons of the Trinity. First, we're told that our salvation is purposed by the Father's initiative and grace, that the Father is the source of everything here. Don't become so focused on Jesus that you forget the Father. Martin Lloyd-Jones warns of that. He says that the gospel is entirely God's. It's about God. If we're not careful, we can begin to think about this as if something like this, if it, as if God is against us and Jesus is on our side and he's begging God to take us back. That's completely wrong. A great deal of error comes out of allowing that thinking to come in. Paul says very clearly, God put Jesus forward as a propitiation. It came from the initiative and grace of the Father. He is the source. Emil Bruner put it this way. He said, in religious thinking, there is ascent and there's descent. And ascent is the self-movement of man upward towards God through moral striving or mystical release or philanthropy or whatever might be the case. And then there's descent, which is the self-movement of God downward towards man. The gospel is the self-movement of God towards man. He chooses us before we choose him. He comes seeking us. We don't seek him. If we love, it's because he first loved us. And nowhere is this more evident than in the coming of Jesus Christ. And so secondly, we see that salvation is accomplished by the initiative and grace of Jesus. For all that Paul has been saying here at the beginning of Romans about how the world is laying in sin and darkness, the turn comes in verse 21. I wish I would have printed it for you. In verse 21, uh, there's just these two little words, but now. It's all that he said all throughout the first three chapters have been leading to those two words, but now. We used to say in the youth group that I was a part of, that's a big old but. The two, maybe the two most important words, I mean, two words that literally take your breath away. Something has happened. Something's changed. God has come. There's a historical happening. Christianity is a historical happening, not just a moral teaching. Christmas, which we're headed into the season, is the but now of human history. In Jesus, God has changed everything. He's solved the problem of our sin by putting forward Jesus on the cross. This is really a theology of the cross here. Uh, and we know that by the phrase, verse 25, by his blood. 
And so we're told three things about the cross specifically. We're told that it was a redemption, that secondly, it was a propitiation, and that thirdly, it was a demonstration. And that third thing is so important that we're going to come back to it and only talk about that next week. But let's briefly mention the other two before we move on to our last point. And we're told first that it's a redemption, that we that just we're justified as a, by grace as a gift through the redemption that comes in Jesus Christ. And that word redemption is a commercial word. It means to buy something at great price. And so here we learn a couple of really important things. First, that we are very costly to love. That there's a great price to pay to be in relationship with us. And secondly, God gladly paid the price, which was the death of his cherished, dearly loved son. We have been bought by the most precious item in the universe, the blood of God the Son himself, which shows us how costly we are and shows us how precious to him we are. The most precious thing, probably the most precious material thing I have in my entire life is a watch that my grandfather, who was much more like a father to me than a grandfather, uh, gave me before he passed away. It's a very expensive watch. It's a very nice watch. I don't have too many things like that in my life. I wear it sometimes on Sundays. But listen, if one of my kids were in trouble and I had to sell the watch, I wouldn't think twice because they're far more precious. You see, the cost, the cost shows the preciousness of the thing that's being bought. There's a redemption that has happened. Not only that, we're told also that the redemption is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. It's a really another, another really important theological word there. And propitiation means that God's wrath has been satisfied through death. Many people really have a problem with this. They have a hard time with this. But remember in, in one, uh, 118, the problem is the wrath of God. We're under the wrath of God. That's what Paul's been working out here. Propitiation is the truth that the wrath of God has been removed. But what Paul says is that it is God's own great love that has propitiated his own holy wrath. So get this. The revelation here is that not that God is so cruel he demands death for sin. The revelation is that he is so loving that God himself gave himself in Jesus to save us from himself. I'm going to take the quiet to be that that's a mind-bending truth. Think about how mind-bending that truth is, that God himself gave himself in Jesus to save us from himself. That's what that word propitiation means. And we're told, lastly, that it's applied to our hearts through the initiative and the grace of the Holy Spirit. To be received by faith, verse 25. Faith is the way God causes what God has done to become yours, but it's not a work. Ephesians 2, not your own doing, the gift of God. Don't turn faith into a work. Faith and works are opposite. That's what the apostle goes on to say down in verse 27. No boasting. Why? Because of the law of works? No, but the law of faith. Now, don't get tripped up by that word law there. It isn't referring to the law, capital L of God. It means a principle. So there's a principle of works, and the principle of works is you look in. You look to yourself for what you need. It has to come from you. The principle of faith is you stop looking to yourself. You look away from yourself to Jesus and, and his work. What you need has to come from outside of you. Justification is God's work in Jesus given to us by the Spirit as a gift. So Paul says elsewhere, what do you have that you did not receive? What a great question. Can I just suggest, that's 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? Instead of asking, this is what you do, ought to do around the Thanksgiving table this week, okay? Instead of doing what you always do and asking, what are you thankful for? And the kid's kind of like, hmm. And they, what, ask this question. I dare you to name me one 
good thing in your life that isn't a gift. What do you have that you didn't receive? The answer is what? Nothing. Then Paul goes on to say, if you received it, then why do you boast? As if you did not. And that brings us to the last point, that if no one is any better than anyone else, and if salvation is free, if it's a gift, then there can be no boasting, because boasting and faith are opposites. If you want to know what faith is, if you're hearing you're not a Christian and you hear us talking about faith, faith is not boasting. You're either boasting or you're believing. There are only two options. You're either boasting or you're believing. And the person who's boasting is still struggling for righteousness. The person who's believing knows that the struggle is ended in Christ, and that's the difference. Paul says, verse 27, what becomes of our boasting? Which, of course, he assumes we're all doing it. It's in the way it's constructed in that question. And boasting is self-glorying, which is the very essence of falling short of God's glory. It's trying to establish a righteousness of your own. So this is the way we all lived at one time, Paul said always putting ourselves on display, always bringing forth evidence for our own greatness because for this person, the struggle for righteousness isn't over. The verdict does not come down. They're in the courtroom every single day. Every moment of every day is an opportunity to swing judge and jury in their favor. And so they make their speeches and they present their evidence because they're hoping for a verdict. But what Paul goes on to say is the gospel is the end of all of that. Faith is the end of boasting because faith is God-glorying. Faith is not looking to yourself. Faith means you stop looking at your strengths. You stop thinking about your sins. You stop rehearsing and regretting your past. You stop worrying about your future. You stop thinking about yourself altogether. Faith is self-forgetfulness, which is another name for humility. A person who has been touched by grace can't help but be humble. Because when you become a Christian, you stop boasting. You start believing because the struggle righteousness is over. The verdict has come down. If your faith is in Jesus, you're out of the courtroom. You know that? Listen, this is, if you, this, this is it right here, what I'm about to say. You ready? Here's the truth. Who I am and what I have done is irrelevant. Jesus and what he has done can't be improved upon. I'm in him. And you are too if your faith is in him. And therefore, if you're in him, he is your wisdom. He is your righteousness. He is your sanctification. He is your redemption. And if we're going to boast, the scripture says there's only one option. We boast in him. And then from that flows a lifestyle of humility and joy and gratitude and patience with others and encouraging words, which is the very opposite of boasting. Now, there's so much more. Gosh, there's so much more we could say, but I need to come to the end. And so let me just make one maybe surprising application because I really felt led to do this this week. Let me make it a surprising special application. Jesus said this in Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so what the Bible says is that our words are the overflow of what is really in our hearts. Our words is the overflow of what's really in our hearts. And, I, and the Bible has a lot to say about being careful with your words and more than any other generation before we need to be really careful because not just the words that come out of our mouths, but now those that we type on our smartphones and publish for the whole world to read. Paul has words in mind in Romans 3. Let me show you this. In describing our sin up in verses 13 and 14, he used the throat, the tongue, the lips, the mouth as the main culprits of sin. 
we sin against one another the most with words, spoken and unspoken. When Paul went on to describe the moment of salvation in verse 19, he said that it's the point when you have no words. When Job finally met God at the end of the book, this is what he said. He said, I lay my hand on my mouth. <laughs> so a Christian is a Christian, a person who has no words. And then lastly, the first application of justification to sanctification Paul offers is a warning against boasting here in verse 27. So sin, justification, sanctification are all here framed by our use of words. If you want to know, there's only two things. You're either boasting or you're believing. And if you want to know which one is true of you, look at your words. Let me just make three quick applications. First, it means I think that we should be careful, that we should be careful with our words. They have great power. Part of what it means for us to be made in the image of God who brought forth the heavens and the earth by powerfully speaking into existence. You have the ability to speak things into existence in the life of others. Do you know that? feels really mystical, doesn't it? Like, ooh, that's good. Your words can create courage in someone where there is no courage. They can create joy where there is no joy, and they can create despair where there is no despair either. So on. We read Proverbs 12 this week. I love this little proverb. Anxiety weighs a man down, but good words makes him glad. Who's anxious? Anybody else in the room? You know what the, the solution to your anxiety is? The words of a friend. With great power, as we know from Spider-Man, comes great responsibility. Because your words, spoken or unspoken, can also bring death. Sticks and stones may break bones, but words can break the spirit, which is far worse. And so words can cause wounds we carry for the rest of our lives. And really, it's magnified by social media. All the studies show that people who spend the most time on Facebook are the most miserable. Because it's just almost impossible to not get overwhelmed and discouraged. And so we have to be careful. Secondly... I think not only here that we be careful with our words, but that we show fewer words. Those who understand grace will just be people that have fewer words. A person touched by grace, they have less words. The Bible's clear where words are many and where Facebook posts too are many, transgression is not lacking. So get better with words. And getting better means fewer words. If not fewer words, at least slower words. So when you're tempted to speak, be quiet instead and then think and then speak. Paul uses that word quiet more than once to describe how Christians should live. Out of the spotlight, in secret, unseen. Because the minute you start speaking or posting, you're forcing yourself back into the middle of things. But the defining characteristic of a person touched by grace is humility. And listen, humility and quiet go hand in hand. As do pride in words. And then lastly, not only be careful with words and be, maybe show fewer words and speak fewer words, but... Thirdly, only use words that build others up and not yourself. Because the opposite of boasting, which we're warned against here, is an to be an encouragement. Encouraging words. And so, you're either boasting or believing. You don't have to guess which one's true of you. You don't have to guess to what degree these truths that we've talked about this morning have sunk down into your heart. You don't have to guess. Just look at your words. The boasting person's words are rash. There's lots of them. They're self glorying, often at the expense of others, the believing person is careful with few words. And the words they do have, they offer as, uh, as, as an encouragement to other people. If you think of it this way, this whole next week, Thanksgiving is the anti-boast. That's what we have in front of us, the, the chance to an anti-boast for an entire week. Paul says, what becomes a boasting? It's excluded. For we hold that no one is
one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. What a beautiful life rearranging truth, isn't it? Let's pray. So, Father, we do confess the ways that you've just nailed us. You've nailed us. Uh, the Apostle Paul knew the human heart well, and, he, and he's nailed us. When he puts the spotlight up for us to see ourselves in the way we can go about our life boasting, bragging, drawing attention to ourselves, being far more concerned with putting forward our resumes instead of remaining in the background, dragging other people down into the mud because it makes us feel better about ourselves. We have sinned greatly in many ways, and the root of that sin is an unbelieving heart that would still believe that court is in session and that we stand there condemned and so we have no choice but to constantly be put, putting forth evidence, piece of evidence after evidence after evidence as to why uh, you should love us, why you should regard us, why you should be nice to us and, and, and let us into the kingdom of heaven. When in truth, nothing could be further from the truth. In truth, the reality is that in Jesus Christ, the wrath of God has been poured out. The sentence of guilty for all those who are in him has been executed. The court has been adjourned and we stand before a loving father who longs to just wrap his arms around us and hug us and bring us into his joy. How wrong we are. And so we pray, even in these last moments as we sing together, that you would dismantle our fear and our pride, dismantle our unbelief, and speak the beauty of these truths to our hearts yet again until we believe. We say, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief so that we might become those, not those who boast, but those who believe and are saved. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is a week of smiles and celebrations and too much food and too much fun and time off work. It really is a week of resting. And that resting means that I I. I I hear the words of the Savior on the cross echoing, you know, in my life constantly. It is finished, it is finished, it is finished. So uh, it's mine to just enjoy the good gifts that he's given to, to me. So that's what I hope this week is for you. Uh, but it all begins with knowing that there's an old hymn that says, even frowning providences are really hiding a smiling face. It comes from knowing that you live this week and every week. If your faith is in the Lord Jesus, beneath the Father's smile. So put a smile on your face, knowing that you have his smile, and then go, and may your joy be uh, the very thing that draws people to the Father through you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.